Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing, sir? Well, I'm excited about my 30 days of relentless nonviolent resistance. I'm How's posting that been going? every day for the all of Pride Month something about creating change locally. Mm-hmm. And this is on Facebook. So facebook.com slash Derek.Knox. And these posts are all public, so you don't have to be my friend to read them. So just Very check nice. these out. That's all I'm going to say about them now. Just check them out. They're going to be good all through June. They are going to be good. They have been good. Uh, Derek is very good at, uh, you know, breaking things down. So I definitely encourage you guys to uh, check those out. Um, Yeah, and people are annoying me and telling me I need to make a course now based on them. I mean, I don't know what you're doing to all these people, but... (laughs) You do need to make this course. (laughs) Like, it needs to get done. Like, how long have we been talking about it? We got to get on it, my guy. We got to get on it. People, you got to give the people what they want, dude. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Think, be thinking about that. But anyway, while we are just for the sake of time, because like we got a whole book to we go over, let's go ahead and uh, jump into the content. But before we do, want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of uh, independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So we are in the book of Samuel today. And once again, um, according to the Come Follow Me anyway, there are several chapters we are just not going to get to. Um, And, you know, there's going to be several stories or chapters that Derek and I may not get to today just for the sake of time. But uh, we wanted to try to do our best to go over the book of Samuel as best we could. And uh, we'll just we'll we'll just see what happens. But yeah, and they also I'm adding some chapters that aren't part of the Come Follow Me assigned reading because I want to get the whole of the arc of the David and Jonathan narrative together because that's one of the most important same gender love stories in all of the scriptures. So we need that. So when you say not part of the come follow me reading, you're talking you're talking about uh elsewhere in the book of Samuel or elsewhere in the in the Hebrew Bible. Elsewhere in the so the the reading for this week stops at 1 Samuel 18, I think. And so we don't mm-hmm. even get the rest of of the uh of that narrative rest of the story yes and it omits the lament that david has for jonathan in second samuel one we don't get that when we cover second samuel so i'm covering those today got you well all right then so uh we will go ahead and see what we can uh, cover in these again this whole book that only gives us roughly what is this four seven okay only about nine chapters here but is what it is. So uh, I'm going to start because we didn't really get a chance to talk about, uh, we didn't get a chance to really talk about these first couple of chapters in in Samuel. We briefly mentioned uh, Hannah uh, from Mm -hmm. our last Come Follow Me discussion, but there is something else I would like to discuss. Uh, Oh, shoot, forgot about a, is there anything we want to say by way of historical background real quick? I, I think I got something really quick to say about this, Derek, but do you have anything you want to Yeah, adjust? the one thing to say is this is part of a the, what's called the Deuteronomistic history, which is sort of wrestling with 
well, what's what's going on with Israel? How is the how are the promises to Israel getting played out in the promised land? Looking back from the standpoint of the exile, what went wrong? What went well? How does all that work? And making sense of um, the mismatch between God's promises and the children in exile. Thank you for sharing that, Derek. Um, let's go ahead and uh, move to, well, partially what we want to go back to. Well, okay. Well, I was going to put this on the back burner and uh, we'd get to it if there was time, but I'd really like to go back to uh, chapter two of Samuel. We were we were technically supposed to discuss it last week, but we didn't get to any, uh, any of Samuel's, save a brief mention of Hannah's song. Uh, but this week, we had a uh, troublesome event in Idaho. Um, 31 men, members of the uh, white supremacist group Patriot Front, were arrested, presumably on their way to uh, engage in hostile activities at an LGBTQ event in Idaho. Um, something interesting was um, some folks on Reddit are saying that about a third of these young men are uh, members of the church. And while I can't verify that just yet, I, I don't think any of us would be surprised if that ended up being the case. And I and I do want to talk about it uh, a little bit using this story that starts in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Um, so anyway, what we, what we got in uh, this chapter is an elderly priest named Eli, this 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 is the dude that Samuel is entrusted to after his uh, birth. Eli Eli got two sons who are also priests. However, those two sons are pretty vile sinners. They desecrate offerings, steal from the Lord, and they uh, commit adultery. Eli, as their uh, father and ranking ecclesiastical leader should discipline them but he he doesn't do much he doesn't even say much not not even an actual demand that they stop their problematic behavior he just draws their attention to it and talks about what a bad report it is this this this, this is all in chapter 2 by the way uh the sons don't listen to Eli surprise surprise and uh, they don't repent and Eli as their father and ranking leader he doesn't do any more to intervene or restrain his sons the Lord isn't cool with that, and uh, Eli is punished. The priesthood of Shiloh is condemned, and not only Eli's family, but also Israel, because Eli is a leader in this place. Uh, all of Israel loses God's protection. The Philistines beat Israel in battle. They uh, take the Ark of the Covenant afterward, and then Eli's sons are killed, Upon, you know, which upon hearing, Eli himself also dies. We are we are told in the text that uh, that Eli's inclination to honor his sons more than God, as well as his failure to discipline his sons adequately, are what led to these punishments. The whole nation suffered because of Eli's cowardice. Now, now let me go ahead and bring this back to what happened with uh, you know the Patriot Front in Idaho over this weekend. And let me again say that this claim about a third of them being members of the church has not yet been verified. There is, however, still a conversation to be had about the permissiveness of our institution when it comes to our sins of bigotry. Uh, 
Like Eli was too soft on his sons, the church is too soft on us. And yeah, you could you could very well argue that uh, that uh, the church actually enables this stuff, but but I'm not taking it that far today. The point I'm trying to make is that Eli's impotence uh, when it came to his sons that led to the destruction of his family and the thrashing of Israel. It led to God no longer protecting God's people. I, I feel we're similarly compromised because like Eli, we know what's happening in our ranks and we have the power and the capability to address it. We can, we can discipline the bigots. We can, we, we can implement strategy to unlearn bigotry, but the best we've been able to do is what appears to be a, a token partnership with the NAACP and the phrase abandoning attitudes and actions of prejudice with, you know, one or two simple condemnations of racism every so often. Uh, we have seen more of those, especially after uh, George Floyd. In other words, our action against bigotry is nowhere near proportional to the problem and our capacity to address the problem for the same reason we can believe that a third of these men were Mormon. The same reason this very group was recruiting at BYU a few years back. The same reason the BYU president didn't want the word diversity in the office of belonging uh, on BYU's campus. Uh, made to address the issues of racism. The same reason that Brad Wilcox has been saying the same problematic stuff for years without being checked until February. The same reason that the church ain't saying nothing about George Floyd for a whole week. And when they did, condemned looting and rioting, but not police brutality. That wouldn't happen for a whole five months. Uh, Elder uh, President Oaks's remarks at the BYU devotional in October of that same year. And uh, it's the same reason that we have no strategy or policy to unlearn racism in the church, despite our lack of popularity with black folks. That reason is that we're cowards. And while we may not go to war with and lose the Philistines, I definitely feel like we're forfeiting God's protection because of our cowardice in the face of such clear violations of the first and second great commandments. And if the numbers we're hearing are true about these Patriot front young men being members of the church, it's just one more piece of evidence that we're not doing nearly enough or being brave enough. You you got any thoughts about that, Derek? Yeah, let me say two things real quick. I'll try to make it real quick. I know that's impossible, but let's try. Just say what you got to say. Number one is, I think it's important not to let all or nothing black and white thinking get us caught up in, is Eli a good guy or a bad guy? Because this real life isn't Disney. And the Bible isn't Disney. Like, Eli, I think, still was a man of God, right? But he made big mistakes. And those can both be true at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think we get misunderstood by people today when we talk about our leaders and holding them accountable. It's not we think they're bad. I mean, there's a whole bunch. You can be good in many other ways in your life and still be a racist, right? I think that is something that needs to be named. And we get this all or nothing thinking that gets people very protective and they end up protecting their own identity as a faithful member of the church. They're like, I'm a faithful member of the church, therefore I have to sustain the prophet, there I have to do this and this and this and this, right? So let's just take a step back from that panic, actually. And this leads to the, to the next piece. There's a challenge for the leaders of our church I think there are some reasons why they're not calling out racism as strongly as they could. It's because they will end up 
you know those old timey cartoons where you have a cartoon character on the limb of a tree and like like the coyote is sawing off the tree limb that he's standing on and then he falls. Mm-hmm. There's a sense in which if uh, leaders of the church condemn racism clearly and effectively, they feel that they will be um, sawing off the, the tree that they the, the branch that they're standing on, right? Because then people will say. Well, look, they're descended from the authority of Brigham Young. They are descended from people who, between Brigham Young and Spencer W. Kimball, said that black folks were not eligible for the priesthood or temple, right? That is the heritage that they've received and that they're building on. And to say, whoops, they were all wrong about something, that would undo their authority, Right. Because if they were wrong about that, what else could they be wrong about and how who knows what? Right. So I think they're afraid of all the questions it would ask. But what they don't realize is that vulnerability builds and fuels trust. Like the more someone accountable is accountable and the more they put themselves out there and the more they make themselves available to cross check and checks and balances, the more you can trust them. Right. So. That's what I would say on this is uh, trust the process and and be humble and and take take a social risk. It's not a truth risk or a spiritual risk. It's a social risk to say, you know what? We messed up. I messed up and and then move on. And then people will will it will build real trust rather than this fake superficial um, Disney fied version of something that actually isn't solid. Okay. Okay. I think that's all I wanted to say about uh, section, or sorry, chapters two through four. Um, shall we move on to? I think the next thing we got to have that we're going to have is a uh, chapter, chapter eight. You wanted to say something about that? Yeah. So we're starting the whole David cycle, and there's a whole bunch to say about Saul too. And I'm we're not, uh, we're not really going to cover Saul that much on his own. But when we get into David, I, I thought of something, and it's this. Ideally, we would dis- discuss these texts jointly with the appropriate psalms. So when you go through the book of Psalms, some psalms have a superscription that links the psalm to an, an event in David's life. So there's commentary on all of these stories that we're about to get. And we're not today reading them together, and I, ideally we would. Uh, but we'll see when we get into the book of Psalms that David is the author of praises and royal and ceremonial hymns, laments, both individual and communal, love songs, we'll get one of those today, psalms of thanksgiving, and even a lullaby. And you know where the lullaby is? It's when it's when David rocked Goliath to sleep. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> how, how long did you take to think that up? Uh, well, it's not so much how long it took me to think it up, but how to like sneak it in there and make it like seamlessly inserted into something that I logically would say. Yes, good job. <laughs> well, anyway, enough suffering. Uh, I wanted to say one thing real quick about the appointing of a king 
for Israel because so many members of the church use this as their primary proof text why we shouldn't ask God for stuff or why we shouldn't ask God for change. Be like, oh, you can't ask God for change because he might give it to you and it'll be a bad thing and he'll just allow you to turn you over to your own wickedness and let you you have it. And Mm -hmm. this, it gets, I've heard this being used with LGBT people about why we can't have same gender ceilings because if we annoy God and ask for it, God might give it to us anyway, even though it's bad. So I just want to forestall that type of uh, thinking by by noticing something similar. Yes, the children of Israel complain uh, both rightly and wrongly throughout the Hebrew Bible. But notice that complaining in faith and complaining in unbelief can sound superficially very similar. Mm -hmm. But um, when we look at, at this text, we realize this is something very different. Here, the children of Israel are complaining out of unbelief because they have lost trust in God. That's why they want the king is right. because they've lost trust in God. So, Because um, God is supposed to be the king, right? Right, right. Um, but ironically, God promised the children of Israel that in Deuteronomy 17, they could have a king if they wanted one, right? So they could have done it differently. They could have done it as an expression of faith in God, um, as a, as a uh, not a rejection of God. But here we see in the narrative, the children of Israel were not appealing to that Deuteronomy 17 promise. They were appealing to something else. We want to be like the rest of the nations. We want to be caught up in militarism. This is in verses 19 and 20 of of 1 Samuel 8. We want a king to fight our our battles. So it was this reasoning. It was the motivation for what they were asking, not the thing that they Mm -hmm. were asking for. So asking for a change by itself is not bad. It's why were they asking it. And I want to just say this idea that it's wrong to ask God for things is problematic because, one, it contradicts the foundational narrative of the the church that Joseph asked of God. And second, uh, it fails to note that the Israelites here were asking for change as an abandonment of God. And I just want to um, sort of forestall any any use of this text is just very different than what we are sincerely asking for. We're, mm-hmm. we're coming from mm-hmm. a standpoint of faith, asking God to deliver on what God has promised. Exactly the, the LGBT thing is exactly the opposite of um, asking God for a king. Mm-hmm. So that's it. Cool. Thank you for bringing that out. So I want to... Um... I want to go to verse, uh, or sorry, chapter 14 now. Um, And by this time, Saul has been made king and has had some successes early in his kingship. But by the time we get to chapter 14, his personal and spiritual shortcomings are already starting to manifest themselves to uh, both his own and Israel's detriment. Impulsive and impatient, he made some pretty questionable decisions under pressure and took no responsibility for action for his actions. The final nail in his kingship coffin comes when he disobeys a direct order from the Lord and tries to justify it, claiming it was for God's glory and uh, instead of taking responsibility for his choices. Uh, and if we get some time, we'll talk about that too. It's in uh, chapter 15, but I, I want to briefly talk about one of these choices that Saul made. So at this point in chapter 14, we're embroiled in a, uh, still embroiled in a war with the Philistines. 
And uh, Saul's son, Jonathan, who we met back in chapter 13, had a successful assault on a garrison that panicked the Philistines in all directions. Saul, in his own camp with his own troops, tries to capitalize on this by chasing the fleeing enemy and pushes his soldiers so hard that he uh, actually puts a death curse on any troops who so much as tasted the honey on the ground around them. The curse doesn't come from anyone but Saul. Uh, God does not institute that curse, and it just doesn't make no sense. Jonathan doesn't actually know about this curse, and he eats some of the honey, and he's immediately refreshed. But immediately after, he is told about the curse and responds in a way that makes sense. This is verse 29. He says, My... My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if today the troops had eaten freely of the spoil taken from their enemies. For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. Close quote. So basically Jonathan said, this is a bad military strategy. I'm not listening to this. If they could just eat and maintain their strength, their victory and chances for it would be even greater. It was common sense. That is what Jonathan is appealing to. Um, and to make Saul's strategy look even more questionable in this moment, the next consequences of Saul's, of Saul's curse, in addition to his army being tired, uh, was the breaking of God's law. The exhausted troops ate animals from the plunder of the defeated Philistines. They did defeat them at this particular moment. And they didn't drain the blood, which is a violation of the law of Moses. They were so committed to obeying a law from Saul, a man-made law, but were simultaneously willing to break a law of God. And I believe there's a lesson there, too, about our commitment to man-made laws that aren't found in the scriptures while neglecting laws and commands that are clearly that clearly are in the scriptures. Had Saul just let his soldiers eat when they could have eaten, they wouldn't be breaking this law. Um, the, 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 the rest of this story is going to uh, complicate things a little bit and, uh, well, complicate the point I want to make a little bit, but I do want to make uh, this point now real quick. Um, some of the rules we got to follow don't make much sense and have no clear root in anything divine. Saul's curse didn't come from God. It came from Saul. Those rules can actually, like those kinds of rules can actually lead us to not keep the laws that actually do for, come from God. Uh, just like it ended up being for Saul and his men. For example, our institution expects homophobia from us from us, even though that doesn't have any real root in our scriptures, and that ends up leading us to neglect actual laws that do come from God, the most important ones actually, like the first and second great commandment. Uh, further, Jonathan was better for not knowing or heeding the death curse because he was in a better position to succeed after eating the honey and everyone else would have been too. And even further, Jonathan wasn't disobedient or contentious for the sake of being disobedient and contentious. He, he stated his reasons for disagreeing with his father's curse. He pointed to the destructive consequences of his father's actions and the constructive consequences of his own as his evidence. This is the primary way we stopped using the Bible to justify slavery back in the day. We had seen the destructive consequences of our actions and decided to reconsider the rules we thought were in the Bible and actually weren't. Obviously, we'd love to see that with our LGBTQ siblings as well. Like, look at the fruits of uh, 
of uh, queer dispossession, like higher rates of self-harm, substance abuse and depression and the general alienation they experience in our communities and try to tell me that makes more sense than the inverse of accepting queer people as they are. We can have more. We can really fully take advantage of more of our talent that exists in the church and we don't have to deal um you know, collectively as a community with having to comfort people that should be a part of us anyway because of their orientations. Uh, one puts all of humanity, like one of these solutions puts all of humanity in a better place while the other uh, solution of dispossessing queer folks suppresses a people's expression because it supposedly makes everyone else uncomfortable or contradicts their social conditioning of what society is supposed to look like. Um yeah. But anyway, the rest of the story, like I said, complicates things uh, just a little bit. After their victory over the Philistines, Saul tries to define, uh, tries to divine their next move, but God is not responding. Then Saul breaks out the Urim and Thummim to figure out who is the reason that God ain't talking. And it turns out that Jonathan ends up being identified as the problem. I don't know why Jonathan is identified as the problem. I feel like there's something theological important about Jonathan being identified, especially considering the rest of the story. But I don't have an answer for that right now. I, I, I want to know the answer to that question. So if anybody got one or an idea, please send me your best midrashes for this story. Um, I, I personally would like to believe that God knew Jonathan wasn't the real problem, but Saul instead. But uh, that's not how things look here. Uh, Jonathan anyway submits to his father's will to die for his trans transgression, unjust as it is, and Saul is about to go through with it. The, uh, the troops, however, resist the punishment and ransom Jonathan. They, they cite his service to Israel and the fact that he has worked with God, and Jonathan doesn't die, fortunately. Uh, there's another critique of leadership in here, like uh, Saul once again honoring his own oaths over God's laws, and we'll get to make that critique again in the next chapter when Saul really falls from grace. Uh, right now, though, I want to talk about the, the lesson in allyship here, considering the troops did the right thing by protecting Jonathan in the face of a leader's foolish rules. Uh, even though Saul was anointed to that position. Jonathan had done good and wisely that day. He had brought a victory to Israel that Saul was able to capitalize on. He listened to God and to his common sense and was better for it. Everybody was better for it, but he was still marked as the problem because he didn't obey this man-made law that he didn't know about and thought was foolish anyway when he did learn about it. Yet he submitted himself to an unjust execution over some honey. His fellow soldiers' words seem to understand the injustice when they say in, uh, this is chapter 14, verse 45, Shall Jonathan die, who has accomplished this great victory in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God today. Close quote. So the people ransomed Jonathan and he did not die. They knew the punishment didn't fit the perceived offense and they probably knew at this point that the oath was also nonsensical and unjust, so they intervened. Um, I think I made my point. All, all I'll say is, uh, is, uh, is we can learn from that. Yeah. Yeah, I actually want to connect this with the narrative 
in First Samuel 21. This is in verses 1 through 7 of, of chapter 21. And this is where, I'm not going to go into it in detail, but David and his men were hungry, and they were... Uh, they ended up going to the tabernacle and asking the priest for bread. And the only bread they had was the bread of the presence, or also called the showbread. And these are the loaves that are set out at the beginning of the week. You set out these loaves, and they're just there the whole week so that, uh, you know, they're in God's presence, right? And so he's like, well, then give us those loaves. And uh, David and his uh, military men ate them and, and were, were saved. And... Um, and I find that interesting because Jesus uses right. that as part of the justification for some of his apparent rule breaking, or at least he broke what people thought were the rules. And I think it all comes down to, well, what are the effects? And of course, in Judaism, at least in rabbinic, rabbinic Judaism, which postdates this, this text, you can break any law um, uh, to save a life with the exception of three. You can definitely eat prohibited foods if you're literally, literally going to starve to death, right? God is a God of life, and I think that in this case, um, if that's the only food they had, uh, then they then they had to eat the the bread of the presence. And I think the and, and I think there's a it's not just like oh David just cheated the rules. I think there's a particular messianic function to what David is doing, and what Jesus is doing is embodying his position as the Davidic king. And saying, look, like something amazing happened when David broke into this world, right? And and something similar is happening here. And how how um how he that he justified healing on the Sabbath, saying the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. At the end of Mark two, and that is amazing. And I think that's how it is for all the rules. The rules were made for people, not people for the rules. So if you have a choice between breaking a rule and breaking a person, I'm going to break the rule. So that's all I have to say about that. And so I think this provides a very interesting literary contrast to um, Jonathan yeah. and the honey. And that's all I had about this story as well. So let's go ahead and move on to First uh, Samuel 16. Uh, this is uh, David's, what is this? This is David, right? Yes, this is the selection of David as the next king. So for reasons that we're not going to get into, Saul ends up not being what the Lord wants to be king. So we're going to get a new king, and that new king is going to be King David. So let me just turn to 1 Samuel 16. I'm just going to read. This whole narrative is great, but what happens is uh, Samuel goes to Jesse, the father of a bunch of kids, and says one of your kids is going to be the next king. And this is verse uh, 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Look not to his appearance and to his lofty stature, for I, has for I have cast him aside. And this is one of the older sons. For not as man sees does God see. For man sees with the eyes, and the Lord sees with the heart. And so Samuel passed by, um, passed over all of Jesse's sons that were brought to him. It turns out that David was left out. He wasn't even brought before Samuel to be uh, evaluated. Uh, we go to verse 11, and Samuel said to Jesse, are there no more lads? And he said, the youngest still is left, and look, he is tending the flock. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and fetch him, for we shall not sit to eat until he comes here. And this ends up being David, this young, last 
Shepard. Not even fit to be uh, on the uh, on the qualification or um, in the assessment. I love how this connects so much with Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So it's the least likely one that that ends up being picked king. And so David here, uh, now of course once <laughs> David is is king and he's he's on top, then we've got a whole bunch of problems and we get that whole Hannah cycle again. Um, but I also love that Ruth, uh, that David is the great grandson of Ruth the Moabite. So we get that full circle again. And so I'm just so glad that we've got the raising up of those on the margins. Yeah, indeed. Uh, we got the, uh, you know, that's the big story of the Bible or one of the big stories. And, um, we've seen that several times already through, uh, you know, just the introductory chapters of Samuel, the, the infertile mother with Hannah, the, uh, selection of the not second born son, the, the last born son, actually, uh, we're actually going to see that with David. Um, I mean, we've already seen David's selection, but uh, now we're going to move to 17 where we see probably his most famous story or one of his most famous stories, his confrontation with uh, Goliath. And I don't actually have a lot I want to say about this story. It's been exegeted and talked about to death. Um, but I do want to talk about something that often gets neglected in the story or something that at least I've neglected. And it was David's response to uh, his encounter with Goliath Um specifically Goliath's defiance of Israel. That's the part that hit me hard this time because it was uh, really encouraging and it might have something to do with this translation I'm reading. I don't really know. But anyway, despite Goliath's size, David was not scared. Uh, he even seemed to be a bit arrogant and maybe that's, again, just the translation I'm reading. But David was kind of cold with his reaction to Goliath. Uh, anyway, let me let me just go ahead and read it. This is uh, chapter 17, verse 26, when David finds himself on the battlefield. David sees the uh, scared shoulders and responds, quote, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Close quote. It almost reads like a, like a roast to me because what... Because what David is uh, really saying here is that Goliath, in spite of his imposing presence, has nothing else going for him. He's both on the wrong side of this war and severely disadvantaged for fighting on the side, for for not fighting on the side of the God of Israel. Like, what is he going to do? What's he doing out there? This is this is where David's confidence really comes from. It's the uh, he he's entering this conflict knowing his advantages, knowing that he's in the right, and knowing that he's entitled to the Lord's strength and that the Lord will help him. I, I, I think of people like Derek, honestly, when I when I think of uh, David. You know, you know you're in the right. You know the Lord validates you, and you know the Lord is on your side. So you can march into a uh, you know, a functionally and definitionally homophobic church full of homophobes with confidence that God will help you uh, slay the homophobia. Those of us seeking to validate the humanity of those who, those to whom it is typically denied in spaces that can be hostile toward it, this is the kind of confidence I want us to move with. Uh, you know, queerphobes, racists, misogynists, and other bigots, we know they're not going to win because they're not on God's side. They are not living into God's uh purposes. Yeah, we got to work and yeah, we got to show up and strategize and move with courage. But like, ultimately, 
this is a fight that we're going to win because we are on God's side. And I think that's all I wanted to uh, bring up is really just kind of carry this attitude that David is carrying into. Like, he's just like, who are these uncircumcised? Who's this uncircumcised Philistine that thinks he got anything to bring to this fight that thinks they're going to defy the God of Israel? Like we can, we should be able to show up with that same confidence. Who are these homophobes, racist misogynists who show up to church acting like they own the place when they're not even on God's side. I want us to move with that energy. I want us to move with that almost arrogance and confidence uh, that is just, that's all I wanted to really bring into this conversation. Yeah. That is so amazing. Like, uh, everyone's going to want to appropriate the, the David, you know, everyone wants to see themselves as the good side, the good guys. And everyone wants to see themselves right. as the underdog, right? Even people with power, like straight people now think they're persecuted. And I'm like, oh dear. Well, anyway, uh, so the two things I wanted to say about this is one, how do you know if you're on the right side? It's to look at God's promises, right? Uh, that's what the rainbow is about is God's promises and holding God accountable to God's promises. And I think we like just someone who's gone through three years of beyond the block has seen all the good that God has had to say towards LGBTQ folks. Right. And I think you, like we're on the side of where God's promises are. So that's how we know that we are um, enacting uh, the, the covenant community. The second thing I want to say is to note one detail real quick um, in verses 38 and 40 with what happens. So what happens is uh, David gets nominated or volunteers to take on Goliath. So this is going to be a one-on-one -on -one thing, right? Uh, instead of all the, the whole armies of both sides fighting each other, they each pick one, and whoever wins, wins for, for all. And so Saul is like, David, you got to win, so I'm going to outfit you with, with my own armor and my stuff. And, like, that doesn't work. What works for Saul does not work for David. David's like, like I've never worn armor. I'm just a shepherd. I'm, I've got these, uh, this sling here, and that's what I know. So what, what works for one person doesn't work for another. And we see this with LGBTQ stuff all the time. Straight cisgender people will come up to us and say, well, all you gotta do is, and like, well, of course it works for you, mm -hmm. but that's not gonna work for us, right? So we have to have different covenant paths, and the covenant path for Saul, it looked different than the covenant path for David. What David had to do was authentic to himself, and so that's why I think David is a queer like, hero. That's what, like, he what? couldn't walk in it, <laughs> the armor. Yeah, yeah. Right, like if 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 queer people tried to do what straight people told us to do, like we wouldn't be we wouldn't be able to function, right? And so many of us can't. Anyway, I don't want to spend too much time, more time on this. There's just so much we could say, but I want to get on to um, there's Abigail and then the whole David and Jonathan cycle. Oh gosh, which one do you want to talk about first? Let's talk about Abigail first. Okay, Abigail. So first things first, we're going to see in the story of Abigail a uh, recurring theme throughout several other stories centering around women in the Bible. And uh, that is their uh, wise interventions in stories that step up where the men in their lives fail. We saw this at least two or three times in the book of Judges with women like Deborah and Jael and the uh, woman who killed Abimelech. And... Uh, Many of the men who are attached to these women are 
godless or foolish and make mistakes that either get themselves killed or almost get or al- almost get themselves killed. And it's no different here in Abigail's story, who acts uh, very cleverly, very wisely to uh, protect herself and protect her house. So uh, what happens is David goes to Nabal and Abigail's home, a rich married couple. David and his men provide protection for Nabal's herds and ask if uh, he could spare some food. But Nabal turns them away with nothing. And after hearing of Nabal's inhospitality, David is ready to roll up on him and take some vengeance. Uh, Fortunately, one of Nabal's servants told the whole story to Abigail about how uncharitable Nabal was and how he uh, yelled at David's servants. And uh, he even insulted Nabal in the process. Um, But Abigail responds by sending a a large supply of provisions to meet David. And uh, she follows behind, ready to intercede for her household. She paid homage to David as she would to a king. She further acknowledges Nabal's foolishness, even says in the text that he lives up to his name, which means fool. And uh, then she encourages David to just forget the whole thing, further adding uh, that his conscience would be clear if he just forgot the whole thing and uh, didn't do something he would regret. But uh, yeah, David heeds her, is impressed, and uh, he blesses her. Abigail really handled business this day. She uh, really demonstrated her capability and her wisdom. She saved lives, prevented senseless conflict, and kept David from making a terrible decision. And I would really invite people to ponder uh, why so many of these women in the Hebrew Bible have taken on this kind of role where they are acting as uh, redeemers in their sphere. You, you think about what Zipporah did. You think about what Jael did. Think about what Deborah did. Uh all of these women had to do things that ultimately ended up redeeming a whole people. Zipporah's actions ended up saving Moses's life, which, of course, preserved the instrument of uh, God's deliverance. Uh, Jael had to, you know, intercede and, you know, kill a godless man. Um, and now we see we're at uh, Abigail having to intercede or at least do something that her husband should have done to, you know, protect herself and to protect her house and protect Nabal even. But uh, an interesting twist to this story, uh, or I guess an epilogue to this story. Um, Once uh, Nabal sobers up, Abigail goes and tells him everything, including what she did and what the crisis was that they averted, uh, presumably. And uh, Nabal has like either a stroke or a heart attack and he dies and uh that's the end of the ball but when uh, david hears about this he takes abigail as a wife and this is gonna complicate things by the time david has kids and there's probably another conversation we can have about plural wives here uh, especially considering that uh, david or not david but uh the lord tells the people Like, if they're going to have a king, one thing that their king cannot do is have a bunch of wives. And, you know, two may not qualify as a bunch. But, again, we're going to see how this uh, complicates things for uh, David. And, uh, you know, we'll probably have more of a conversation to have by the time we get to Solomon. But, uh, again, story for another day. Uh, We'll cover that dysfunction that this brings to David's life and, 
you know, talk about, maybe talk about plural wives by the time we get to uh, Solomon. Uh, but do you got anything to add, Derek? Yeah, I wanted to just name that the Talmud says that there were 48 male prophets and seven female prophets in the Hebrew Bible. And those seven female prophets are Sarah, Miriam, Deborah, Hannah, Abigail, Huldah, and Esther. And so Abigail actually is a, a prophet, okay. a woman prophet. And we get to see some of her prophecy. I think you covered this, but I just want to reinforce it. Um, in verse 28, forgive, pray, the crime of your servant. And this is uh, Abigail speaking to David. And servant here is, is feminine. Uh, forgive, pray, the crime of your servant, for the Lord will surely make for my Lord a stalwart house, for my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and no evil will be found in you all your days. And when a person rises to pursue you, to seek your life, my Lord's life, and this is Lord with a, ca- a lowercase mm-hmm. l, by the way. Uh, she's referring to David. My Lord's life will be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he will sling from the hollow of the sling. And so we get more of, more of this prophecy. And then David uh, accepted the prophecy of Ab- Abigail and saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who has sent you this day to meet me. Right? And blessed is your good sense and blessed are you. And so I just love how um, here we have a woman prophet in the text. And we don't get all of her story. And I, I, I mean, I'm sure that had Israel been ruled by Abigail instead of David, we would have had some some better, uh, mm-hmm. perhaps, outcome. But on the other hand, who knows whether that Hannah cycle will happen and where people who get uh, who are proud end up um, getting humbled mm-hmm. by the Lord. So I want to move on to the... Oh my gosh, we haven't even gotten to David and Jonathan yet. Are we moving on to that next? Yes. Okay, I'll do some heavy editing, but like, go off. I know we wanted to talk about this as one of the main things. Yeah. Um, people might just have to deal with, uh, with this. And I can I can say what I want to say actually pretty quickly. Um, Word, okay. So the first thing to say is that we don't need to find gay sex in order to liken the scriptures unto ourselves, unto ourselves and find a fully queer reading of the text. There's going to be conservative people who say who are going to play gotcha and say, well, it never narrates gay sex between them. And that's true. But we don't need that, right? Um, gay sex on its own actually isn't that transgressive. It's just like two bodies somewhere. What's really transgressive is the cultural and political and um, interpersonal, the whole dynamics. If two people go off and secretly have gay sex, that's not even queer. Um socially all right anyway so um like i said we don't need to find gay sex the relationship between david and jonathan is already culturally transgressive on its own terms especially politically and socially Um, and secondly even without gay sex one or the other either david or jonathan could be gay or bi and the other one could be straight and this makes quite a bit of sense in terms of the asymmetry involved. I myself have often been in love with a straight man, and that narrative of my life could easily have turned out like Jonathan and David, right? There's going to be no sex, but there's going to be love. There's going to be a particular love that, that, assuming that Jonathan is the gay one. And that's a little bit anachronistic, by the way. 
assuming that David is straight and Jonathan is gay, they very well could have some type of uh, uh, love relationship that isn't reciprocated the same way. And um, that just needs to be named. And a lot of people are trying to say, well, either they were both gay or they were both straight. I'm like, well, it could be one or the other. And and, uh, that would make a lot of sense as well. So the first thing I want to say is that in uh, 1 Samuel 18, we're going to have to go back. I'm putting all of the uh, these texts about David and Jonathan together, even though they're not together in the text. Uh, we're going to have to go back to chapter 18. And these first five verses, we have a same-gender covenant here, in a same-gender love covenant. And it happened as he finished speaking with Saul that Jonathan's very self became bound up with David's. Uh, other translations talked about talk about his soul being knit together with David's. And Jonathan loved him as himself. And Saul took him on that day and did not let him go back to his father's house. And Jonathan and David with him sealed a pact because he loved him like himself. And Jonathan took off the cloak that was on him and gave it to David and his battle garb and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David would sally forth wherever Saul sent him, he would succeed. I just love this. We've got this, uh, they made a pact, a covenant. Um, Jonathan loved David like himself. And Jonathan's soul was bound up with David's. Like I said, we see a little bit of asymmetry here. And what's important is this taking off the cloak, that isn't like a sex scene. This is... Um, Jonathan is the crown prince. He is the son of Saul. He's going to inherit the throne. And he is saying, you know what? I am switching my allegiance from my father, the king, and even myself. Saul, uh, Saul's son, Jonathan, is switching the allegiance from himself to David. By this time, David had already been anointed the next king, right? We had that back in the whole, whole mm-hmm. Samuel uh, anointing um, David thing. So that is so transgressive that that Jonathan is divesting of his own privilege to get on board with what the Lord has has chosen. And there's a whole love component to it as well, because Jonathan in part is caught up with the love that all Israel had for David. Because here we have, we didn't read these parts, but all Israel is like, yay, David is great, so much better than, than Saul. And Jonathan is, is caught up in part with that. And I love that this covenant is one that is not imposed from the outside it comes from within it's not a cookie cover cutter covenant it's not some prescripted ordinance it is initiated by jonathan himself and i just find that so beautiful it's like ruth and naomi's covenant ruth's ruth's self-initiated covenant with naomi so i want to just name that and uh well in verse seven the the women are calling out saul has struck down his thousands and david his tens of thousands so we see a little bit of israel getting on board with the new king and jonathan is Mm -hmm. part of that so in in the next chapter we've got uh 19 verses 1 and 4 and saul spoke to jonathan his son and to all his servants to put david to death but jonathan the son of saul was very fond of david And Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, seeks to put you to to death, and so now be on the watch, pray in the morning, and stay in a secret place and hide. And then in verse 4, it says, 
And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father. And, and pleads for the life of what Saul would consider his enemy, right? Saul's trying to kill this uh, rival claimant to the throne. And Jonathan is tra- culturally transgressively, both politically and in terms of family and social relationships, switching his allegiance from his biological family to his chosen family, his beloved uh, David. Oh, by the way, that's what the word David means. It means beloved, um, mm. so let's talk about, um, first Samuel 20 in the next chapter. So verses 16 and 17, it says, for Jonathan has sealed a pact with the house of David and the Lord shall requite it from the hand of David. And this is Jonathan's words right there to, uh, to David. So we get the concluding piece of his, his covenant there. And verse 17, And Jonathan once again swore to David in his love for him, for he loved him as he loved himself, right? Willing to divest his own privilege for the sake of David. And we don't have time to go into all of these things, but I'm going to skip towards verse 30. Because you know, this where's the drama going to hit the fan is when the dad finds out about this transgressive relationship. Oh boy, <laughs> Saul's going to be mad. Saul is going to be embarrassed about his son loving this other man. I'm not saying it was a... Who's going to take his yes, throne. Yes, right? It's not, I'm not saying that, that Saul caught them having gay sex, but Saul caught Jonathan in love with another man in, that, should have, that loyalty should have gone Demonstrating to his loyalty father. To yes. him. So here's what it says, yeah. verse 30. And Saul was incensed with Jonathan, and he said to him, Oh, son of a perverse, wayward woman, don't I know you have chosen the son of Jesse, that's David, to your own shame and the shame of your mother's nakedness. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you and your kingship will not be unshaken. And now send and fetch him to me, for he is a dead man. And Jonathan answered Saul his father and said to him, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? And Saul cast the spear at him, that is, Jonathan, to strike him down. And Jonathan knew that it was resolved by his father to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in burning anger, and he ate no food on the second day of the new moon because he was pained for David and because his father had humiliated him. Oh, boy, this is this is a coming out scene. Like, I guarantee you, so many Yo. gay boys have had this exact word for word conversation you know you're ashamed of the family i'm gonna throw stuff at you i want to kill you and i want to kill the dude that you're with right this is literally um uh, likening the scriptures unto so many of our stories um and then i'm going to skip down to um uh a a meeting with david and jonathan Uh, just as the lad came and this is one of um Uh, one of David's lad, David's servant lads. Just as the lad came, this is verse 41, David arose from by the mound and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times, and each man kissed the other and wept for the other. This is David and Jonathan, though David longer. And Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for the two of us have sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between me and you, between my seed and your seed for all time. 
and Jonathan arose and came to the town. Here we have an eternal covenant between two mm. men. Like, hello, like yeah. um It sounds exactly, just like a right. And we see this almost. resonances with uh yeah. with um with the Ruth and Naomi. And you know why it resonates with marriage is because marriage is chosen family. Marriage is literally chosen family. You're taking mm. people that are not biologically related and now familyizing them. You're in familiating. Marriage that is, is queer. queer. It is queer as as a mm-hmm. flamingo peacock bird what i don't know but anyway chosen family (laughs) leaving your biologically biological family to make a new chosen family with someone not biologically related to that is queer and i want to go into um i'm not going to read it but in first samuel 23 verses 15 through 18 they make another covenant and this is where they appear to say goodbye for the last time and then Saul and Jonathan both get killed in battle, not not by David. Um, but then we're going to go into the lament that's in Second Samuel one. This isn't part of the. I think that the editors of the Come Follow Me deliberately excluded all of this love between uh, David and Jonathan, especially the love, the loving lament that we get. Let me turn to First Samuel or Second Samuel chapter one. The lament starts in verse. 17 uh, through 27 but for the sake of time I'm going to read the last three verses 25 through 27 how have the war this is David singing right remember he's a harpist he's a singer he's a poet we didn't cover that but that's uh, um, uh, right right that's what he was initially doing for Saul and here's what David sings how have the warriors fallen in the midst of the battle Jonathan Upon your heights, slain, I grieve for you, my brother, Jonathan. Very dear you were to me. More wondrous your love to me than the love of women. How have the warriors fallen and the gear of the battle is lost? Let me read those middle lines again. I grieve for you, my brother, Jonathan. Very dear you were to me. More wondrous your love to me than the love of women. Isn't that amazing? It's so beautiful. We have love between two men celebrated here. Um, and like I said, it doesn't need to have, we don't need to have gay sex to win. We've already won because this is so culturally transgressive that it has made it into the history. And like we've said many times, the journals of those who were marginalized end up becoming the scriptures of the next generation. I love what the Queer Bible Commentary has to say on this. Quote, In the end, then, it is neither necessary nor possible to reach a single definitive conclusion about the nature of the relationship between David and Jonathan. Rather than insisting only upon a sexual interpretation of David's lament for Jonathan, a queer reading might call attention to multiple ways of understanding the text and use those multiple interpretations to raise questions about the reasons why particular readers tend to be drawn to certain conclusions rather than others. Close quote. And there you have it, the love between two men. Hmm. Brilliant. You actually did that quite well and succinctly. I'm proud of you, my guy. I think that's a good note to end on. Um, but do we have anything else we want to briefly go over before we start wrapping up? I don't think so. All right, sweet. 
Then before we begin our closing exercises, just want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, has a new podcast partner we want to put y'all on to called the Fireside Podcast with uh, Blair Hodges. Been out there for a minute, and uh, I think the next season, if it's not already out, it's uh, going to be coming out soon. Uh, it features in-depth interviews about religion and culture, featuring uh, brilliant writers, scholars, activists, and more. If you're spiritual but not religious or religious but not spiritual or something else entirely, there's a seat saved for you at Fireside. Learn more and listen to Fireside by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Uh, Brother Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com, also on Twitter and Instagram at btblds, and by searching for us on Facebook. Yes, and also want to give a, give a special thanks to uh, David Doyle for editing the transcripts, uh, as well as Stephanie Martz and Angela Carter for being a big help with the social media uh, also the team doing the, uh, the work of assembling our episode outlines, including Stephanie Peterson, Mary Gavilanes, Christine Lestarge, Jen Altman, and Beth Johnson. These outlines are also, uh, these outlines also include the, uh, faithful feminist episodes from the same week. So you can have a one-stop shop for your come follow me study helps. You can find the link to the outlines in the uh, show notes, as well as the drop down menu on our website. Uh, same goes for the transcripts. You can find those on the drop-down menu on our website and uh, the show notes. Um, we we talked about your thirty your thirty day thing, Derek. But do you got any other events that you are that you're doing? Mm, no, I don't think so. Other than working on that class, obviously. Uh. <laughs> yeah, and uh, for to those of you guys who've been uh, speaking about or. Uh, you know, reaching out to me about the uh, workbook for the class. I do hear you guys. Uh, it's summer now, and you know things didn't really slow down for me the way I thought that I would. But uh, I am committed to making sure that uh, folks have a way to do the uh, anti-racism course in a community. So I will be working on that and making sure it gets done. Uh, best belief. Is there anything else though, Derek, that we got to put the people onto? Nope, I don't think so. Very good. Then thank you for joining us till we meet again next okay, week. Okay, till we meet again next week with more jokes and more Bible and more love. <laughs> okay, bye everyone.